0: You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello, welcome to this week's podcast. This week, you'll hear a conversation that I had with a fellow called Michael Luter. And Michael was the lead researcher on a very recently published paper. And the published paper was called... Novel and ultra-aware damaging variants in neuropeptide signaling are associated with disordered eating behaviors. And so this year I've done a couple of um, podcasts speaking to scientists and researchers about the genetic implications and the genetic research that's going on in um, eating disorders such as anorexia, bulimia and binge eating disorder. And so when I came across this study, I was like, oh, I have to speak to this guy. So Michael agreed to talk to me. And I'm going to let him explain what they did and the relevance of it. So I'm just going to play the conversation that we had. The first question that I asked Michael was the same as the, what I asked all of my guests, which is to tell us a little bit about himself. Here's Michael.
1: So my name is Michael Luter. I am a psychiatrist. I trained uh, an MD-PhD program at UT Southwestern. Um, I have a PhD in biochemistry, and then I did a residency in psychiatry, and postdoctoral training in neur- neuroscience, and some additional training in human genetics. And I've been working in eating disorders since about two thousand seven, I guess.
0: What got, what got you interested in, in working in the field of eating disorders?
1: It, it's pretty boring. Answer really. I, um, you know, I, I had gotten my PhD first, and I knew a lot about sort of the neuroscience of feeding and appetite and when i started doing my re- clinical rotations going to different sites you know i would work with like patients with schizophrenia for one month and then like depression or bipolar and when i got to the eating disorder side i was I, I was really interested and fascinated and i um it was just so clear working with people that there had to be a biological component a neurobiological component to it and there was almost nothing known about what was going on with their feeding systems so I thought you know I'll just take my knowledge of biochemistry and appetite regulation and and feeding and just kind of ask very simple questions of what's going on in eating disorders.
0: So it's really interesting to me that you say it was really obvious that there was something biochemical going on because to thousands of people it seems that's not obvious at all. So what made you think that it was obvious? So I would
1: agree. You know, growing up, you know, I kind of grew up in a very rural Midwestern farm town. And I think kind of the common perception of people with eating disorders are they're just kind of attention seeking. They're kind of women wanting to be thin and, and get feedback and stuff. And you take that sort of bias going in and you talk to people and it's very clear that they're very, you know, they're suffering. Uh, the de- the degree of their eating symptoms is you know, far in excess of what you would expect from just, you know, attention-seeking behavior or anything like that. Um, It was pretty obvious within just a very short period of time that, you know, that it was a a biologically driven illness.
0: Yeah, I just find that fascinating that you said that because it's actually, for many of us who suffer from eating disorders, it's obvious to ourselves that there's something really strange going on, but try and convince some therapists that that it's, you know, anything other than some... um, Psychological reason completely that can be quite frustrating to be I, I guess on on the end of treatment. But
1: um. I mean, it's pretty remarkable if you think you know you've got like oxygen and then like water and then food would probably be like your third you know most prescient need. And to think that people are just psychologically overcoming that innate drive to eat, um, it, it's pretty shocking, really, to me. So.
0: I agree with you there. Oh well, that's a good start. We agree on something. Um, I would um, so tell me about the um, recent study that you've done. I've seen it on all of my social media feeds, and um, you know, people have been throwing it at me. Like, have you seen this? Of course, I have. So, but I'd love for you to tell us about this news that's just hit.
1: Um, so, for a little bit of a background, I kind of the angle that I take in research is kind of the opposite of what. Most of the other people in eating disorders are doing so. If you if you look at the big studies that you know places like you know North Carolina or they're doing in Europe with the GWAS studies, those are very large scale studies where they're kind of looking for very common uh, genetic variants that give a very small risk of of um, developing an eating disorder. So they look for things you know that might be in ten or fifteen percent of the population, but might give you a one percent chance. Um, or less, of, of getting an eating disorder. So I kind of look at the complete opposite end of the spectrum. I'm interested in very rare things that give you a very high risk of getting an eating disorder. So there's a, a large variety of genetic variants in the population that probably predispose to eating disorders, all the way from rare things that give you you know, an 80 or 90% chance of an eating disorder down to very common things that give you a, a low risk. So I work on the other end of the spectrum, and I kind of got into it First, a mentor of mine um, was working with a large family. It was a mother who had 12 children, and eight out of the 12 children had eating disorders. So we started doing family-based studies to identify these large families that had a lot of um, family members fle- affected by eating disorders, and then we would do very simple genetic um, link um, studies to identify what gene mutations were shared in the patients with eating disorders that weren't shared with the the patients who were unaffected. And we published our first paper, I think in 2013, maybe, uh, where we identified kind of the first two rare mutations that gave um, a a very high risk of getting eating disorder. It was something around 80 to 90% of the the people with this mutation and the families would get the eating disorder. So what we found is that then there were a lot of other people that I would meet in clinical practice or in my studies who was very clearly had these very damaging mutations so it would be like you know we had like a grandmother and then like a father and then like a patient or we ha- would have like a father passed on to a son and they would have very severe illness and it, it was very clear that they had a genetic component but they just didn't have enough family members for us to be able to kind of trace these along so we needed a different way to try to fish out these very uh, rare damaging mutations that were um where we didn't have a large family. So that's when I met up with my uh, colleague, um, Dr. Uh, Michelson, Jake Michelson. And we kind of took a different approach then, which was to basically collect a group of patients and then sequence all of their genes, all 20,000 of the genes. And then, and I really have to give Jake all the credit for this. He was very clever in how he did it. And he was able to take this mountain and mountain of data, you know, literally like terabytes of data. And do these statistical analyses to identify the mutations that were both damaging, but also clustered together in pathways. So for instance, if we found a gene like our top hit in anorexia was this gene called neurotensin, which is a a neurotransmitter in the brain. And we had four people who had damaging mutations in neurotensin. And if you look at the general population, these large databases of, of DNA sequence, It was something like you would predict maybe one in a thousand people um, would have a damaging mutation there. And we had four out of, um, I think, 39 patients with anorexia. So almost 10% of our patients had a damaging variant in neurotensin, whereas you would expect a very, very small number of people. So he was able to do this basically for every gene and find Um, Genes that would then cluster with multiple different family members affected. I'm sorry, with multiple different patients in our cohort, unrelated patients in our cohort. And from that, this combination of sequencing and then statistics, we were able to find which genes were more likely to have really damaging variants in them.
0: What's a damaging mutation or a damaging variant?
1: That's a little bit tricky because we're not actually doing testing. It's kind of predicted based on these computer algorithms. So computers can go in and, and see what amino acid should be in a protein and they, they can see how big of a change it is. And there are ways of like looking um, at how conserved an amino acid is over evolution. So like we were seeing these mutations that would be in genes or in amino acids that were all the way back to say like mice or fruit flies or uh, you know worms. And you can tell that if that mutation was shared all the way back there, it must, um, I'm sorry, if that amino acid was conserved all the way back through evolutionary time, it must be very important. So you can also look at the degree of change. So some amino acids are very similar and some are very, very different. So the more different the change is, the more likely it is to be predicted to be damaging. Probably the most striking thing about the whole uh, study was we found a lot of mutation that cluster mutations that cluster into what are called cleavage sites. So these amino, these neurotransmitters are formed as very long, um, polypeptides, so strings of amino acids, then they get chopped up into little bits and the little bits are then the the neurotransmitter. And there are these well-known cleavage sites that are either, um, lysine, arginine, or arginine, arginine. So it's KR or RR. And we had a very large number. It was something like, um, Seven different patients had mutations in an arginine that got rid of the cleavage site. So they are no longer able to make the, the peptide, the neuropeptide transmitter at all. So it's essentially a, they lost half of their copies of the gene.
0: Okay. So what does all of this mean? For a person with an eating
1: disorder. It, it's kind of like very simple, but very profound. So the um, neuropeptide transmitters control a lot of feeding behavior and appetite. When people are hungry, these neurotransmitters will drive like food into increase uh, dietary absorption of food. So they help the intestines work better and they help you absorb food better. Uh, they drive motivated behavior, So they make you work harder for food. They um, help you choose foods that are more high in calories. Uh, they decrease your anxiety so that you're more likely to go out and find food, and things like that. So people have kind of known that these neurotransmitters were involved in different aspects of feeding and appetite, but they have not been linked before quite as directly to eating disorders um, um, in the past. So it's kind of an obvious finding, but it had not been kind of seen before.
0: Um, and so really it's, it's showing that the behavioral differences that we see in a person who, say, has anorexia or another type of eating disorder can be traced back to um, gene mutations.
1: Yes. So it seems to affect genes that are mainly involved in modifying behavior to Uh, energy state.
0: Okay. I know that you spoke right at the beginning about a a family, so a
1: person who had 12
0: children and eight of which had had an eating disorder. How much do you know about, say, those eight that did um, compared to the four that didn't? Um, How much do you know about those, the progression of the eating disorder? And I guess the question that I'm trying to get at is... Are the ad- adaptations that you see only present after a person goes into energy deficit if a person has that genetic de- um, pre- predisposition for anorexia? Or those four that didn't show eating disorder signs, could they have possibly, if they had gone on diets and gone into energy deficit, could they have then maybe developed eating disorder? Was the potential there for them is the question that I'm asking.
1: They certainly did not have the same risk as the family members did. I guess the the way I sort of, especially for anorexia, you know, the restricting type. The way I sort of imagine it in my head is that patients with anorexia have this very specific deficit in adapting their behaviors to meet their energy state. You know, we know that you need a combination of both uh, an environmental component and the genetic component, right? So the genetic component, the risk seems to be that they um, have these very sluggish brain response pathways or regions of the brain that are involved in mediating motivated behaviors, don't work quite as well. So as long as you're at a normal weight and kind of eating all right and you don't have very high energy demands, you kind of chug along just fine. But the minute you're kind of faced with a a caloric challenge, you know, you get into a negative energy state, whether that be an illness or a diet or increased activity from a sports um, or anything like that, they're not able to uh, change their behavior in order to meet their caloric needs. Um, And it seems that most of the genes that we're pulling out are in a very specific uh, brain region, going from the, the prefrontal cortex, the, the front part of the brain, down to the hypothalamus, the, sort of the feeding center of the brain, and the motivated re- reward centers in the, of the brain uh, to alter people's behavior to adapt uh, to a low energy state.
0: Yeah, because I'm very really interested in the um, adaptively famine hypothesis and things like that that's a migration state that anorexia is hence the question is like well is is that genetics that exist and then that you know if that person goes into energy deficit then that sort of is what that's set up for or if a person doesn't go into energy deficit who has those genetics then they might never actually move into that state where they have that compromised relationship with their um, caloric intake.
1: Yeah, I've heard the, the the flight from famine hypothesis. Mm. Um, I think you know it's a very valid explanation. Uh, it's very hard to prove these sort of evolutionary arguments. I think one of the really interesting thing from our study is a very large percentage of our patients, you know, somewhere I don't know, 10, 20, 30 percent had most of the not most of the risk, but a lot of the risk could be accounted for by novel or very rare mutations. So things that only they have, or maybe a, a couple of other people in the world have. So it's very late in evolutionary time. Um, it appears that these things just pop up kind of recently and maybe get transmitted along, um, through family members, um, pretty recently in, in, in sort of evolutionary time, suggesting that these, uh, mutations are popping up constantly and then are selected for based upon kind of Different factors.
0: I guess it's it's just interesting as to why those mutations existed in the
1: first place. Well, I sort of have a theory. It's my this is sort of my alternate theory to the you know the flight from famine hypothesis, which is you know anorexia restricting type, especially so closely linked to OCD. You know, almost all patients with restricting type either have a full diagnosis of OCD or they have a very uh, high rates of perfectionism and harm avoidance and things like that. I sort of think that view it as like this behavioral spectrum that's being set up. So, um, the important thing to remember, you know, you know, people always talk about like anorexia doesn't make any sense. Why would you have these mutations where you don't eat? You need to eat to live. Right. But if you think about it up until only maybe a hundred or 200 years ago, the food supply was not secure. You know, you could die from eating food pretty easily from food poisoning. So I almost think of it like this spectrum. On on one end of the spectrum, you have people who are very um, OCD. They're very anxious. They don't like to eat high-calorie foods that can go bad and go rancid. And those people are protected against food poisoning, but they're very vulnerable to to famine, right? And then on the other end of the spectrum are people who are sort of uh, overweight. Um, They kind of overeat. they're protected against famine, but they're vulnerable to like food poisoning and starve. And um, probably one of the f- most fun experiments I ever did back when I was doing mouse work is we took a mouse that was genetically altered to be obsessive compulsive. And we took a mouse that was genetically altered to be obese. And we bred the two of them together and the mouse was perfectly normal. It didn't have OCD and it didn't have obesity um, suggesting really that there's a pathway that control that links both of those things together. Um, and probably what evolution is doing is creating this large variety of uh, different genetic variants um, that allow some people to you know survive famine and some people to survive um, uh, food poisoning. you know and that's what nature loves to do. you know nature loves to have this spectrum of behavior to kind of be prepared for sort of any sort of uh, challenge that might come along.
0: I know that um, within, you know, I work with a lot of people who have an anorexia and diagnosis, and within that diagnosis, there's certainly some people that are way more OCD. I was high on the OCD um, yeah. stuff myself, and then some people that really don't have that element. And then some people who, well, I'd say probably at least 80% of the people I've ever met with anorexia have an exercise um, compulsion. But there's still that 20% that don't. And it's more, you know, and then you've got the whole um, ARFID sort of diagnosis, which is more about avoiding food and not necessarily, you know, that's that would um, being avoiding different types of food and textures of food. And um, so even within restrictive eating disorders, there's so many pockets of um, like clusters of people that have similar behavioral aspects and some that don't.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense because we see these rare mutations at different parts of the pathway. You know, and some of them have much more dense OCD symptoms. The further you kind of go down into the hypothalamus, it's much more of a dense eating with much less depression and OCD and anxiety. So depending on which part of the pathway we're affecting, we really see much different behaviors.
0: So what do you think is, is next to further explore this?
1: Um, well, our top hit for anorexia was... Um, a gene, you know, neurotensin, like I said, neurotensin and neurotensin receptor. So we had four people with mutations in the neurotransmitter neurotensin, and we had one woman who had a a pretty serious mutation in the neurotensin receptor, and her daughter and granddaughter both had eating disorders as well. Um, a friend of mine, a colleague of mine at Michigan State, Gina Leininger, works on neurotensin signaling, and I called her up and I knew she worked on it and I was talking to her and she has a lot of very interesting behaviors that she sees in mice who don't have neurotensin receptor. Uh, they have impairments and sort of feeding behaviors. They're very active. So they're very hyper locomotor. Um, they run like crazy. If she takes food away from them, they'll die within a very short period of time. So it's very hard for her to do any kind of feeding studies on them. So I've been encouraging her to look at it more. Um, The neurotensin receptor is highly, highly expressed in the dopamine neurons, um, which would make a lot of sense. It's it's poised to kind of link uh, nutritional status to motivated behavior. Yeah. So I'm encouraging her to follow up on that, trying to help her get some grant money to do some mouse studies. So that might be one potential pathway to start treating, especially compulsive exercise and stuff. Mm -hmm. um i think that would be very interesting but that would be years down the road um we're much we haven't talked about the bulimia side of this at all yeah let's let's talk about that the bulimia part was really fascinating so our top hit there was um in a system called glp1 so that stands for glucagon-like peptide one um it is expressed in the gut so um After a meal, you have these special receptors in your intestines called L-cells, and they sense nutrients. So they sense uh, amino acids from protein, or they sense um, sugar from carbohydrates, or uh, fatty acids from from lipids. And then they release hormones, these hormones called incretins. Um, And they have a number of functions. They work in the periphery, in places like the muscle and the fat, to help um, sensitize the action of insulin, to kind of take up nutrients and store them. But... The receptors are also loaded in the brain, and they're also in the kind of the brain reward circuit, and they're very powerful appetite suppressants. So these peptides get released, and they go through the circulation up to the brain, and they seem to be very important for terminating meals, for terminating feeding behavior. And um, a very large number of patients with bulimia had mutations in, uh, in either the receptor or in this neuropeptide. And the exciting thing was, I then kind of looked into the literature, and there were two groups that have looked at GLP-1 levels after meals. So normally, you know, after you eat, about 20 to 30 minutes after the meal, these levels go way up and help, you know, shut down your appetite. And those levels were lower in patients with bulimia, suggesting that this might actually be the cause of of the bulimia, that they're not able um, to adequately release these hormones that shut off uh, the meal afterwards, which is why they continue to eat and eat to the point of being uncomfortably full and, and needing to vomit. Right. The exciting thing there is that these medications are actually already on the market uh, for treatment of diabetes. Yes. And yes. one of them is approved for obesity as well. So that is actually something we could take directly into humans, into patients with bulimia and, and try out. Um, you know, I've actually already done it a little bit in some of uh, my more treatment resistant patients. So I think that is a very exciting, uh, patients Mm -hmm. with bulimia, you know, even within the field of eating disorders kind of get less, um, research than anorexia and anorexia seems to get a lot of the, the focus and bulimia, even within our field is kind of pushed to the side a little bit. So this Uh might be a kind of a a step forward in that field as well.
0: And, um, just so I can understand this though, that those levels being low in, in bulimia, as you spoke about, would that... Could that not be caused by the binging and purging? Um, Just going, is it a chicken egg thing?
1: Uh, It could certainly be, uh, you know, if you just see a low level, right, you could say, well, maybe this is just related to the eating disorder behaviors, right? But our genetic data would suggest the opposite, right? There's no reason that you should have mutations in this pathway if it's secondary to a behavior. This would actually suggest that it's causal.
0: I just, um, I feel that many of us, even with anorexia, we, we binge eat in recovery um, and it feels, although we're told not to a lot of the time, it feels very natural to do that. Um, I've experienced with bulimia, they can actually stop, if they focus on stopping the purging and don't focus on stopping the binging, then they can then usually, the, the sort of cycle of restriction then stops. If they focus on eating more between binges and not purging, then they don't go back because it's restriction that sort of like prompts the binge and it's the binge that binge that prompts the purge.
1: Yeah, it's a little complicated. Clearly we know that there's a lot of conversion from you know pure restricting to binge purge over time. That it's probably related to some kind of brain adaptation to, to chronic malnourishment. You know, the brain adapts. That's
0: what I'm getting
1: at. Mm-hmm. The brain does adapt to then binge eat when calories are available. Yes. Within bulimia, that you know there's certainly that group of people, people who kind of started off as, as restrictors who then over time kind of move into binging, and mm. that's pretty well documented by some of the longitudinal studies. But there is a second group of patients with bulimia who primarily have this very, very intense drive to eat, and the purging is really only secondary to the physical discomfort or you know, I've had patients tell me that they'll purge in order to uh, be able to keep continue eating. Um, so I've been uh, targeting more of the treatment on that, uh, these new treatments, the appetite suppressants to that group of people. So yes,
0: a, because, but that to me, that stems from, I'd say that was a binge eating disorder stem, not an anorexia stem.
1: Right, right. There's a, a group of like binge eating and, and bulimia that seems to cluster together more.
0: And I think there's also a group of anorexia nervosa and bulimia that cluster together. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so I think bulimia will ultimately kind of segregate into two major clusters: one that is much more of a binge eating type, that's due to impairments in appetite suppression, and then one that's much more like a restricting type that kind of kind of came as a, a compensatory response to the chronic starvation. Yeah,
0: yeah, um, that's that's fascinating because I. I I think that it's more common than is documented or talked about that people in recovery from anorexia binge eat or have the urge to binge eat. Um, I think that because it's inhibited, and especially treatment centres say, oh, don't do that because that's a behaviour you don't want, then people don't necessarily um, talk about it or say, I did this, but... I think that more and more people are talking about it um, in anorexia recovery and understanding that it's quite a normal part of recovery.
1: That is definitely true. We have a a child, our child unit and our adult unit are right next to each other. And I mostly see adult patients, but, you know, I'll help on the child unit when we get really busy. And over there, it's almost always restrictors. You know, they come in 13, 14, 15, 16 as restrictors. And then when they get to me, by the time they're in college or, you know, mid-20s, most of them have converted it over to binge purge subtype. So.
0: Yeah, I always found that restriction is only sustainable for so long. And then due to the malnutrition, that natural urge to binge, to save you from the malnutrition comes in. And I think that – I think it is natural. And I think that if it was not um, – if we weren't – if it wasn't indicated that it was suboptimal or bad or something that shouldn't be done, then a lot of people would binge eat and then – Recover because they'd start to get the nutrients that they need to get them out of energy deficit But because we're told that oh, binge eating is bad and the anorexia just jumps all over that as that's a wrong thing to do You binge, yeah. you binge eat and you can't help but doing that But then there's this all almighty panic like I've got to get rid of this. That was bad. That was wrong That was I'm a bad person and then it turns into a binge restrict cycle because as soon as you purge you just set yourself up for another binge so um, then it can, I do think then it does turn into a behavioral cycle, but I do think it t- it starts out of a natural um, bodily response to starvation. It's
1: because,
0: yeah. you know, i I certainly binged for about four years and I purged by exercise. Um, it was only when I stopped purging by exercises, just let the binges happen. And they took me to weight restoration and then, you know relatively happy ever after
1: <laughs> but, <laughs> well
0: everybody has a different path everybody has a different path that's absolutely right um, so what else do you think that um, is, you think that is interesting or needs to be said about this study that we haven't talked about
1: I, I, I don't know there's so much interesting stuff you know we found other pathways that we haven't highlighted um, probably the other really interesting part of this is that there was a um, a very clear cluster of patients who had mutations in um, inflammatory pathways, so um, it was more of the immune system and sort of um, what we call pro-inflammatory cytokines, um, but it was almost 100% uh, restricting type anorexia. So whereas the neuropeptides, we saw a good mix of both binge eating and bulimia and anorexia, The The patients who had the mutations in the inflammatory pathway were almost all restrictors, which makes sense because inflammation is a very powerful appetite suppressant. And these people seem to have much higher rates of very dense depression, but almost no OCD. So, you know, this might be, you know, hindsight bias, but now that I like treat people, you can clearly see this group of women who come in, they have very high rates of like uh, other inflammatory diseases like rheumatoid arthritis or uh, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, very dense depression, you know, a lot of apathy and low, low mood and not wanting to eat, not much OCD, maybe a little bit. Um, so it looks like there there might be a subset of patients with anorexia that's kind of um, secondary to immune dysfunction. And, and, you know, this has been explored some in the literature they do overall seem to have slightly higher rates of of. Pro-inflammatory, you know, pro-inflammatory states. So I think if we looked at that closely, we may be able to separate out the second group, and they may respond more to, you know, immunological treatments, you know, um, uh, pro or anti-inflammatory treatments, things like that. So I th-
0: that's fascinating. And as you say that, I can sort of think of people whom I know that would kind of fit into that category. I think. Um, people with anorexia yeah whom I know yeah. I certainly see subsets clusters of people with that are more similar similar in their in their type and people I think who who I work with are more similar to how I was, which is very high level of compulsive exercise and very high levels of OCD um, but l- relatively low body dysmorphia um, and that sort of thing because a bit it's I think we we people gravitate to work with in recovery, someone who they think has been through what they're going through, similar to what they're going through. And so I I probably see a bias of people with the high OCD and high exercise, um, component, but it's fascinating to me how the differences within anorexia, how, how we can differ from each other subtly it, but, but there's definitely clusters of people that share those components.
1: So it would be great to be able to kind of classify people and and be able to really target treatments, you know, maybe within five or 10 years, that'll be something that we're doing pretty routinely, but obviously we're not there yet.
0: Huge thank you to Michael Luther for taking us through that study and explaining it in a way that I think I just about understood actually. So that's a um, good place to start and success from there, I would say. I definitely understood what he was getting at with the differences in in between people with anorexia, people within the same diagnosis can have really quite different expressions of the illness, um, different fears associated with the illness, different um, problems when it comes to feeding. And it's so important that we take an individual approach when we're dealing with people with anorexia. And that also can go for you listening to this, that you take an individual approach when you're dealing with yourself and working out what treatment is best for your own self. I think that so often, we're dictated to in treatment, as in, this is what happens with a person with anorexia. You do have um, body image concerns, you do have these insecurities, you do have to go to therapy in order to talk about these insecurities that you apparently do have. And that might not be the case for you. It may be the case for you that you have those um, body image insecurities. So therefore, that might be a great option for you. But it's not for everyone, and it shouldn't be assumed that everybody has the same um, issues and problems and facets of the illness. And therefore, not only should therapists and treatment professionals not um, try and blanket statement people with anorexia, but sometimes we've got to look at our own selves and say, well, maybe actually that's not true to me. And maybe I've actually been sort of led down a bit of a wild goose chase at this um, therapeutic approach. And maybe I need something different because maybe that's not really what my problem is. I think it was really early days in the genetic research that's been going on, but very exciting and so confirming for those of us that deep down have known for a very long time that this is much more than just a psychological illness or an urge and a desire to be thin. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, then email me at info at or tweet at me at love underscore fat underscore. And I do take requests if you have a topic that you would like discussed on this podcast, or if you'd like to come on this podcast yourself and discuss something with me and get in touch. Cheers, and until next time, cheerio.